0: Chapter Thirty Nine of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Nine. I was three and twenty years of age. Not another word had I heard to enlighten me on the subject of my expectations, and my twenty-third birthday was a week gone. We had left Barnard's Inn more than a year, and lived in the temple. Our chambers were in Garden Court, down by the river. Mr. Pocket and I had for some time parted company as to our original relations, though we continued on the best terms. Notwithstanding my inability to settle to anything, which I hope arose out of the restless and incomplete tenure on which I held my means, I had a taste for reading and read regularly so many hours a day. That matter of Herbert's was still progressing, and everything with me was as I have brought it down to the close of the last preceding chapter. Business had taken Herbert on a journey to Marseilles. I was alone, and had a dull sense of being alone. Dispirited and anxious, long hoping that to-morrow or next week would clear my way, and long disappointed, I sadly missed the cheerful face and ready response of my friend. It was wretched weather, stormy and wet, stormy and wet, and mud, 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 deep in all the streets. Day after day a vast heavy veil had been driving over London from the east, and it drove still, as if in the east there were an eternity of cloud and wind. So furious had been the gusts that high buildings in town had had the lead stripped off their roofs, and in the country trees had been torn up, and sails of windmills carried away, and gloomy accounts had come in from the coast of shipwreck and death. Violent blasts of rain had accompanied these rages of wind, and the day just closed, as I sat down to read, had been the worst of all. Alterations had been made in that part of the temple since that time. And it is not now so lonely a character as it had then, nor is it so exposed to the river. We lived at the top of the last house, and the wind rushing up the river shook the house that night like discharges of cannon, or breakings of a sea. When the rain came with it and dashed against the windows, I thought, raising my eyes to them as they rocked, that I might have fancied myself in a storm-beaten lighthouse. Occasionally the smoke came rolling down the chimney as though it could not bear to go out into such a night. And when I set the doors open, and looked down the staircase, the staircase lamps were blown out. And when I shaded my face with my hands, and looked through the black windows, opening them ever so little was out of the question in the teeth of such wind and rain, I saw that the lamps in the court were blown out, and that the lamps on the bridges and the shore were shuddering and that the coal-fires and barges on the river were being carried away before the wind like red-hot splashes in the rain. I read with my watch upon the table, purposing to close my book at eleven o'clock. As I shut it, St. Paul's, and all the many church clocks in the city—some leading, some accompanying, some following—struck that hour. The sound was curiously flawed by the wind, and I was listening and thinking how the wind assailed and tore it, when I heard a footstep on the stair. What nervous folly made me start, and awfully connected with the footstep of my dead sister, matters not. It was past in a moment, and I listened again, and heard the footstep stumble and coming on. Remembering, then, that the staircase lights were blown out, I took up my reading-lamp, and went out to the stairhead. Whoever was below had stopped on seeing my lamp for all was quiet. There is some one down there, is there not?" I called out, looking down. "'Yes,' said a voice from the darkness beneath. "'What floor do you want?' "'The top. Mr. Pip.' "'That is my name. There is nothing the matter.' "'Nothing the matter,' returned the voice, and the man came on. I stood with my lamp held out over the stair-rail and he came slowly within its light. It was a shaded lamp, to shine upon a book, and its circle of light was very contracted, so that he was in it for a mere instant, and then out of it. In the instant I had seen a face that was strange to me, looking up with an incomprehensible air of being touched and pleased by the sight of me. Moving the lamp as the man moved, I made out that he was substantially dressed, but roughly like a voyager by sea, that he had long iron-grey hair, that his age was about sixty, that he was a muscular man, strong on his legs, and that he was browned and hardened by exposure to weather. As he ascended the last stair or two, and the light of my lamp included us both, I saw with a stupid kind of amazement that he was holding out both his hands to me. "'Pray, what is your business?' I asked him. My business?" he repeated, pausing. "'Ah, yes, I will explain my business, by your leave.' "'Do you wish to come in?' "'Yes,' he replied. "'I wish to come in, master.' I had asked him the question inhospitably enough, for I resented the sort of bright and gratified recognition that still shone in his face. I resented it because it seemed to imply that he expected me to respond to it. But I took him into the room I had just left, and, having set the lamp on the table, asked him as civilly as I could to explain himself. He looked about him with the strangest air, an air of wondering pleasure, as if he had some part in the things he admired, and he pulled off a rough outer coat and his hat. Then I saw that his head was furrowed and bald and that the long iron-grey hair grew only on its sides. But I saw nothing that in the least explained him. On the contrary, I saw him next moment, once more, holding out both his hands to me. "'What do you mean?' said I, half suspecting him to be mad. He stopped in his looking at me, and slowly rubbed his right hand over his head. "'It's disappointing to a man.' He said, in a coarse, broken voice, "'Arter having looked forward so distant, and come so fur. But you're not to blame for that. Neither on us is to blame for that. I'll speak in half a minute. Give me half a minute, please.' He sat down in a chair that stood before the fire, and covered his forehead with his large brown, veinous hands. I looked at him attentively then, and recoiled a little from him but I did not know him. "'There's no one nigh,' said he, looking over his shoulder, "'is there?' "'Why do you, a stranger coming into my rooms at this time of the night, ask that question?' said I. "'You're a game one,' he returned, shaking his head at me with a deliberate affection, at once most unintelligible and most exasperating. "'I'm glad you've grown up a game one, but don't catch hold of me, he'll be sorry arterwards to have done it." I relinquished the intention he had detected, for I knew him. Even yet, I could not recall a single feature, but I knew him. If the wind and the rain had driven away the intervening years, had scattered all the intervening objects had swept us to the churchyard where we first stood face to face on such different levels. I could not have known my convict more distinctly than I knew him now, as he sat on the chair before the fire. No need to take a file from his pocket and show it to me. No need to take the handkerchief from his neck and twist it round his head. No need to hug himself with both his arms and take a shivering turn across the room, looking back at me for recognition. I knew him before he gave me one of those aids, though a moment before I had not been conscious of remotely suspecting his identity. He came back to where I stood, and again held out both his hands. Not knowing what to do, for, in my astonishment, I had lost my self-possession, I reluctantly gave him my hands. He grasped them heartily, raised them to his lips, kissed them, and still held them. "'You acted noble, my boy,' said he. "'Noble Pip, and I have never forgot it.'" At a change in his manner, as if he were even going to embrace me, I laid a hand upon his breast, and put him away. "'Stay,' said I. "'Keep off. If you are grateful to me for what I did when I was a little child, I hope you have shown your gratitude by mending your way of life.' If you have come here to thank me, it is not necessary. Still, however you have found me out, there must be something good in the feeling that has brought you here, and I will not repulse you. But surely, you must understand that I—," my attention was so attracted by the singularity of his fixed look at me, that the words died away on my tongue. "'You was a saying,' he observed, when we had confronted one another in silence, That, surely, I must understand—what, surely, must I understand—that I cannot wish to renew that chance intercourse with you of long ago, under these different circumstances. I am glad to believe you have repented and recovered yourself. I am glad to tell you so. I am glad that, thinking I deserve to be thanked, you have come to thank me. But our ways are different ways, none the less. You are wet, and you look weary. Will you drink something before you go?" He had replaced his neckerchief loosely, and had stood keenly observant of me, biting a long end of it. "'I think,' he answered, still with the end at his mouth, and still observant of me, "'that I will drink, I thank you, afore I go.' There was a tray ready on a side-table. I brought it to the table near the fire and asked him what he would have. He touched one of the bottles without looking at it or speaking, and I made him some hot rum and water. I tried to keep my hand steady while I did so, but his look at me, as he leaned back in his chair with a long draggled end of his neckerchief between his teeth evidently forgotten, made my hand very difficult to master. When at last I put the glass to him, I saw with amazement that his eyes were full of tears. After this time I had remained standing, not to disguise that I wished him gone. But I was softened by the softened aspect of the man, and felt a touch of reproach. I hope, said I, hurriedly putting something into a glass for myself, and drawing a chair to the table, that you will not think I spoke harshly to you just now. I had no intention of doing it, and I'm sorry for it if I did. I wish you well and happy. As I put my glass to my lips, he glanced with surprise at the end of his neckerchief, dropping from his mouth when he opened it, and stretched out his hand. I gave him mine, and then he drank, and drew his sleeve across his eyes and forehead. "'How are you living?' I asked him. "'I've been a sheep-farmer, stock-breeder, other trades besides, away in the New World,' said he many a thousand mile of stormy water off from this. I hope you have done well. I've done wonderfully well. There's others went out along o' me, as has done well too. But no man has done nigh as well as me. I'm famous for it. I'm glad to hear it. I hope to hear you say so, my dear boy." Without stopping to try to understand those words, of the tone in which they were spoken, I turned off to a point that had just come into my mind. Have you ever seen a messenger you once sent to me? I inquired since he undertook that trust? Never set eyes upon him. I weren't likely to it. He came faithfully, and he brought me the two one-pound notes. I was a poor boy then, as you know, and to a poor boy, they were a little fortune, but like you. I have done well since, and you must let me pay them back. You can put them to some other poor boy's use." I took out my purse. He watched me as I laid my purse upon the table and opened it, and he watched me as I separated two one-pound notes from its contents. They were clean and new, and I spread them out and handed them over to him. Still watching me, he laid them one upon the other, folded them longwise, Gave them a twist, set fire to them at the lamp, and dropped the ashes into the tray. May I make so bold? He said then, with a smile that was like a frown, and with a frown that was like a smile, as I ask you, how you have done well since you and me was out on them lone shivering marshes? How? Ah! He emptied his glass, got up and stood at the side of the fire, with his heavy brown hand on the mantel-shelf. He put a foot up to the bars, to dry and warm it, and the wet-boot began to steam. But he neither looked at it, nor at the fire, but steadily looked at me. It was only now that I began to tremble. When my lips had parted, and had shaped some words that were without sound, I forced myself to tell him, though I could not do it distinctly that I had been chosen to succeed to some property. "'Might a mere warrant? ask what property?' said he. I faltered. "'I don't know.' "'Might a mere warrant? ask whose property?' said he. I faltered again. I don't know." "'Could I make a guess, I wonder?' said the convict. At your income, since you come of age, as to the first figure now, five. With my heart beating like a heavy hammer of disordered action, I rose out of my chair and stood with my hand upon the back of it, looking wildly at him. Concerning a guardian, he went on, there ought to have been some guardian or such like, whilst you was a minor. Some lawyer, maybe. As to the first letter of that lawyer's name now, would it be J?" All the truth of my position came flashing on me, and its disappointments, dangers, disgraces, consequences of all kinds, rushed in, in such a multitude, that I was borne down by them, and had to struggle for every breath I drew. Put it, he resumed. As the employer of that lawyer, whose name begun with a J, and might be Jackers, put it as he had come over sea to Portsmouth, and had landed there, and had wanted to come on to you. However, you have found me out, you says just now. Well, however, did I find you out? Why, I wrote from Portsmouth to a person in London. For particulars of your address. That person's name, why, Wemmick." I could not have spoken one word, though it had been to save my life. I stood with a hand on the chair-back, and a hand on my breast, where I seemed to be suffocating. I stood so, looking wildly at him, until I grasped at the chair, when the room began to surge and turn. He caught me, drew me to the sofa put me up against the cushions, and bent on one knee before me, bringing the face that I now well remembered, and that I shuddered at, very near to mine. Yes, Pip, dear boy, I've made a gentleman on you. It's me what has done it. I swore that time, sure as ever I earned a guinea, that guinea should go to you. I swore arterwards. Sure as ever I speculated, and got rich, you should get rich. I lived rough, that you should live smooth. I worked hard, that you should be above work. What odds, dear boy? Do I tell it, for you to feel obligation? Not a bit. I tell it, for you to know, as that there hunted dunghill dog, what you kept in life, got his head so high that he could make a gentleman. And, Pip, you're him." The abhorrence in which I held the man, the dread I had of him, the repugnance with which I shrank from him, could not have been exceeded if he had been some terrible beast. Look here, Pip. I'm your second father. You're my son, more to me, nor any son. I've put away money, only for you to spend. When I was a hired-out shepherd, in a solitary hut, not seeing no faces but faces of sheep, till I half forgot what men's and women's faces was like, I see yourn. I drops my knife many a time in that hut, when I was a-eating my dinner or my supper, and I says, Here's the boy again, a-looking at me, whiles I eats and drinks. I see you there and many times, as plain as ever I see you on them misty marshes. Lord, strike me dead," I says each time, and I goes out in the air to say it and the open heavens. But what if I guess liberty and money? I make that boy a gentleman. And I done it. Why, look at you, dear boy, look at these here lodgings of your'n, fit for a lord. A lord? Ah! you shall show money with lords for wagers, and beat em!" In his heat and triumph, and in his knowledge that I had been nearly fainting, he did not remark on my reception of all this. It was the one grain of relief I had. Looky here! He went on, taking my watch out of my pocket, and turning towards him a ring on my finger, while I recoiled from his touch as if he had been a snake. "'A golden, and a booty—that's a gentleman's, I hope—a diamond all set round with rubies—that's a gentleman's, I hope—look at your linen—fine and beautiful—look at your clothes—better ain't to be got—and your books, too.' Turning his eyes round the room, mounting up on their shelves by hundreds, and you read them, don't you? I see you'd been a reading of them when I come in. Ha! <laughs> you shall read them to me, dear boy. And if they're in foreign languages what I don't understand, I shall be just as proud as if I did." Again he took both my hands, and put them to his lips, while my blood ran cold within me. "'Don't you mind talking, Pip,' said he after again drawing the sleeve over his eyes and forehead, as the click came in his throat, which I well remembered. And he was all the more horrible to me, that he was so much in earnest. "'You can't do better, nor keep quiet, dear boy. You ain't looked slowly forward to this, as I have. You wasn't prepared for this, as I was. But didn't you never think it might be me?' "'Oh! No, no, no! I returned,—never, never." never." "'Well, you see, it was me, and single-handed, never a soul in it but my own self and Mr. Jaggers.' "'Was there no one else?' I asked. "'No,' said he, with a glance of surprise. "'Who else should there be? And dear boy, how good-looking you have growed! There's bright eyes somewheres, eh? Isn't there bright eyes somewheres what you love the thoughts on? Oh Estella Estella They shall be yorn, dear boy, if money can buy em not that a gentleman like you, so well set up as you, can't win em off of his own game. But money shall back you. Let me finish what I was a telling you, dear boy. From that there hut and that they're hiring out, I got money left me by my master, which died, and had been the same as me, and got my liberty, and went for myself. In every single thing I went for, I went for you. Lord strike a blight upon it," I says, whatever it was I went for, if it ain't for him, it all prospered wonderful, as I give you to understand just now. I'm famous for it. It was the money left me, and the gains of the first few years what I sent home to Mister Jaggers, all for you. When he first come out, you agreeable to my letter? Oh, that he had never come, that he had left me at the forge, far from contented yet by comparison happy, and then, dear boy, it was a recompense to me. Look'ee here, to know in secret that I was making a gentleman. The blood horses of them colonists might fling up the dust over me as I was walking. What do I say? I says to myself, I'm making a better gentleman nor ever you'll be. When one of em says to another, he was a convict a few year ago, and is a ignorant common fellow now, for all he's lucky, what do I say? I says to myself, if I ain't a gentleman, nor yet ain't got no learning, I'm the owner of such. All on you owns stock and land, which on you owns a brought-up London gentleman. This way I kept myself a-going, and this way I held steady afore my mind that I would for certain come one day and see my boy, and make myself known to him on his own ground he laid his hand on my shoulder i shuddered at the thought that for anything I knew his hand might be stained with blood it warn't easy pip for me to leave them parts nor yet it warn't safe but i held to it and the harder it was the stronger i held for i was determined and my mind firm made up at last! I done it! Dear boy! I done it!" I tried to collect my thoughts, but I was stunned. Throughout I had seemed to myself to attend more to the wind and the rain than to him. Even now I could not separate his voice from those voices, though those were loud, and his was silent. "'Where will you put me?' he asked presently. "'I must be put somewhere, as dear boy. To sleep?" said I. Yes, and to sleep long and sound, he answered, for I've been sea-tossed and sea-washed months and months. My friend and companion, said I, rising from the sofa, is absent. You must have his room. He won't come back to-morrow, will he? No, said I, answering almost mechanically, in spite of my utmost efforts. Not tomorrow, "'Because looky here, dear boy,' he said, dropping his voice, and laying a long finger on my breast in an impressive manner, "'Caution is necessary.' "'How do you mean, Caution?' "'By gee! It's death. What's death?' "'I was sent for life. It's death to come back. There has been overmuch coming back of late years. And I should be of a certainty, be hanged if took." Nothing was needed but this. The wretched man, after loading wretched me with his gold and silver chains for years, had risked his life to come to me, and I held it there in my keeping. If I had loved him, instead of abhorring him, if I had been attracted to him by the strongest admiration and affection, instead of shrinking from him with the strongest repugnance, it could have been no worse. On the contrary, it would have been better, for his preservation would then have naturally and tenderly addressed my heart. My first care was to close the shutters, so that no light might be seen from without, and then to close and make fast the doors. While I did so, he stood at the table drinking rum and eating biscuit. And when I saw him thus engaged, I saw my convict on the marshes at his meal again. It almost seemed to me as if he must stoop down presently to file at his leg. When I had gone into Herbert's room, and had shut off any other communication between it and the staircase than through the room in which our conversation had been held, I asked him if he would go to bed. He said yes, but asked me for some of my gentleman's linen to put on in the morning. I brought it out, and laid it ready for him, and my blood again ran cold, when he again took me by both hands to give me a good night. I got away from him, without knowing how I did it, and mended the fire in the room where we had been together, and sat down by it, afraid to go to bed. For an hour or more I remained too stunned to think. And it was not until I began to think that I began fully to know how wrecked I was, and how the ship in which I had sailed was gone to pieces. Miss Havisham's intentions towards me, all a mere dream. Estella not designed for me. I only suffered in Sartre's house as a convenience, a sting for the greedy relations, a model with a mechanical heart to practice on when no other practice was at hand. Those were the first smarts I had, but sharpest and deepest pain of all. It was for the convict, guilty of I knew not what crimes, and liable to be taken out of those rooms where I sat thinking, and hanged at the old bailey door that I had deserted Joe. I would not have gone back to Joe now. I would not have gone back to Biddy now, for any consideration. Simply, I suppose, because my sense of my own worthless conduct to them was greater than every consideration. No wisdom on earth could have given me the comfort that I should have derived from their simplicity and fidelity, but I could never, never undo what I had done. In every rage of wind and rush of rain, I heard pursuers. Twice I could have sworn there was a knocking and whispering at the outer door. With these fears upon me, I began either to imagine or recall that I had had mysterious warnings of this man's approach. That for weeks gone by, I had passed faces in the streets which I had thought like his. That these likenesses had grown more numerous, as he, coming over the sea, had drawn nearer that his wicked spirit had somehow sent these messengers to mine, and that now on this stormy night he was as good as his word, and with me. Crowding up with these reflections came the reflection that I had seen him with my childish eyes to be a desperately violent man, that I had heard that other convict reiterate that he had tried to murder him, that I had seen him down in the ditch tearing and fighting like a wild beast. Out of such remembrances, I brought into the light of the fire, a half-formed terror, that it might not be safe to be shut up there with him in the dead of the wild solitary night. This dilated, until it filled the room, and impelled me to take a candle, and go in, and look at my dreadful burden. He had rolled a handkerchief round his head, and his face was set and lowering in his sleep. But he was asleep, and quiet, too though he had a pistol lying on the pillow. Assured of this, I softly removed the key to the outside of his door, and turned it on him before I again sat down by the fire. Gradually I slipped from the chair, and lay on the floor. When I awoke, without having parted in my sleep with the perception of my wretchedness, the clocks of the eastward churches were striking five. The candles were wasted out, the fire was dead and the wind and rain intensified the thick black darkness. This is the end of the second stage of Pip's Expectations. End of chapter thirty-nine CHAPTER 40 OF GREAT EXPECTATIONS This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 40 It was fortunate for me that I had to take precautions to ensure, so far as I could, the safety of my dreaded visitor. For this thought pressing on me when I awoke, held other thoughts in a confused concourse at a distance. The impossibility of keeping him concealed in the chambers was self-evident. It could not be done, and the attempt to do it would inevitably engender suspicion. True, I had no avenger in my service now. But I was looked after by an inflammatory old female, assisted by an animated rag-bag, whom she called her niece, and to keep a room secret from them would be to invite curiosity and exaggeration. They both had weak eyes, which I had long attributed to their chronically looking in at keyholes, and they were always at hand when not wanted. Indeed, that was their only reliable quality, besides larceny. Not to get up a mystery with these people, I resolved to announce in the morning that my uncle had unexpectedly come from the country. This course I decided on, while I was yet groping about in the darkness, for the means of getting a light. Not stumbling on the means, after all, I was fain to go out to the adjacent lodge, and get the watchman there to come with his lantern. Now, in groping my way down the black staircase, I fell over something, and that something was a man, crouching in a corner. As the man made no answer when I asked him what he did there, but eluded my touch in silence, I ran to the lodge, and urged the watchman to come quickly, telling him of the incident on the way back. The wind being as fierce as ever, we did not care to endanger the light and the lantern by rekindling the extinguished lamps on the staircase. But we examined the staircase from the bottom to the top, and found no one there. It then occurred to me, as possible, that the man might have slipped into my rooms. So lighting my candle at the watchman's, and leaving him standing at the door, I examined them carefully, including the room in which my dreaded guest lay asleep. All was quiet, and assuredly no other man was in those chambers. It troubled me that there should have been a lurker on the stairs on that night of all nights in the year, and I asked the watchman, on the chance of eliciting some hopeful explanation, as I handed him a dram at the door, whether he had admitted at his gate any gentleman who had perceptibly been dining out. Yes, he said, at different times of the night, three. One lived in Fountain Court, and the other two lived in the lane, and he had seen them all go home. Again. The only other man who dwelt in the house, of which my chambers formed a part, had been in the country for some weeks, and he certainly had not returned in the night, because we had seen his door with his seal on it, as we came upstairs. The night being so bad, sir," said the watchman, as he gave me back my glass uncommon coming few have come in at my gate, besides them three gentlemen that I have named. I don't call to mind another, since about eleven o'clock, when a stranger asked for you." "'My uncle,' I muttered. "'Yes.' "'You saw him, sir?' "'Yes. Oh, yes.' "'Likewise, the person with him?' "'Person with him,' I repeated. "'I judge the person to be with him,' returned the watchman. "'The person stopped when he stopped to make inquiry of me, and the person took this way, when he took this way." What sort of person? The watchman had not particularly noticed. He should say, a working person, to the best of his belief. He had a dust-colored kind of clothes on, under a dark coat. The watchman made more light of the matter than I did, and naturally not having my reason for attaching weight to it. When I had got rid of him which I thought it well to do without prolonging explanations, my mind was much troubled by these two circumstances taken together. Whereas they were easy of innocent solution apart, as, for instance, some diner-out or diner-at-home, who had not gone near this watchman's gate, might have strayed to my staircase and dropped asleep there, and my nameless visitor might have brought someone with him to show him the way, still joined. They had an ugly look to one as prone to distrust and fear as the changes of a few hours had made me. I lighted my fire, which burned with the raw pale flare at that time of the morning, and fell into a doze before it. I seemed to have been dozing a whole night, when the clocks struck six. As there was full an hour and a half between me and daylight, I dozed again. Now, waking up uneasily with prolix conversations about nothing, in my ears, now making thunder of the wind in the chimney, at length falling off into a profound sleep, from which the daylight woke me with a start. All this time I had never been able to consider my own situation, nor could I do so yet. I had not the power to attend to it. I was greatly dejected and distressed, but in an incoherent, wholesale sort of way. As to forming any plan for the future, I could as soon have formed an elephant. When I opened the shutters and looked out at the wet wild morning, all of a leaden hue, when I walked from room to room, when I sat down again shivering before the fire, waiting for my laundress to appear, I thought how miserable I was, but hardly knew why, or how long I had been so, or on what day of the week I made the reflection, or even who I was that made it. At last, the old woman and the niece came in, the latter with a head not easily distinguishable from her dusty broom, and testified surprise at sight of me and the fire, to whom I imparted how my uncle had come in the night, and was then asleep, and how the breakfast preparations were to be modified accordingly. Then I washed and dressed, while they knocked the furniture about and made a dust, and so, in a sort of dream or sleep-waking. I found myself sitting by the fire again, waiting for HIM to come to breakfast. By and by, his door opened, and he came out. I could not bring myself to bear the sight of him, and I thought he had a worse look by daylight. "'I do not even know,' said I, speaking low as he took his seat at the table, "'by what name to call you. I have given out that you are my uncle.' "'That's it, dear boy.' Call me uncle. You assumed some name, I suppose, on board ship. Yes, dear boy. I took the name of Provis. Do you mean to keep that name? Why, yes, dear boy. It's as good as another, unless you like another. What is your real name? I asked him in a whisper. Magwitch. He answered, in the same tone, christened Abel. What were you brought up to be?" "'A warmant, dear boy." He answered quite seriously, and used the word as if it denoted some profession. "'When you came into the temple last night,' said I, pausing to wonder whether that could really have been last night, which seemed so long ago. "'Yes, dear boy. When you came in at the gate, and asked the watchman the way here, had you anyone with you? With me? No, dear boy. But there was some one there?" I didn't take particular notice, he said, dubiously. Not knowing the ways of the place. But I think there was a person, too, coming along of me. Are you known in London? I hope not," said he, giving his neck a jerk with his forefinger that made me turn hot and sick. Were you known? in London once?" "'Not over and above, dear boy. I was in the provinces, mostly." "'Were you tried in London?' "'Which time?' said he, with a sharp look. "'The last time.' He nodded. First, knowed Mr. Jaggers that way. Jaggers was for me.' It was on my lips to ask him what he was tried for. But he took up a knife gave it a flourish, and with the words, and what I done is worked out and paid for, fell to at his breakfast. He ate in a ravenous way that was very disagreeable, and all his actions were uncouth, noisy, and greedy. Some of his teeth had failed him since I saw him eat on the marshes, and as he turned his food in his mouth and turned his head sideways to bring his strongest fangs to bear upon it. He looked terribly like a hungry old dog. If I had begun with any appetite, he would have taken it away, and I should have sat much as I did, repelled from him by an insurmountable aversion, and gloomily looking at the cloth. I am a heavy grubber, dear boy," he said, as a polite kind of apology, when he made an end of his meal. For I always was. If it had been in my constitution to be a lighter grubber, I might have got into lighter trouble. Similarly, I must have me smoke. When I was first hired to help the shepherds t'other side the world, it's my belief I should have turned into a melancholy mad sheep myself, if I hadn't had my smoke." As he said so, he got up from the table and putting his hand into the breast of the pea-coat he wore, brought out a short black pipe, and a handful of loose tobacco, of the kind that is called Negro Head. Having filled his pipe, he put the surplus tobacco back again, as if his pocket were a drawer. Then he took a live coal from the fire with the tongs, and lighted his pipe at it, and then turned round on the hearth-rug with his back to the fire, and went through his favorite action of holding out both his hands for mine. "'And this,' said he, dandling my hands up and down in his, as he puffed at his pipe, "'and this the gentleman what I made, the real genuine one. He does me good for to look at you, Pip. All I stip is to stand by and look at you, dear boy.' I released my hands as soon as I could and found that I was beginning slowly to settle down to the contemplation of my condition. What I was chained to, and how heavily, became intelligible to me, as I heard his hoarse voice, and sat looking up at his furrowed bald head, with its iron-grey hair at the sides. I mustn't see my gentleman a-foot in it, in the mire of the streets. There mustn't be no mud on his boots. My gentlemen must have horses, Pip. Horses to ride, and horses to drive, and horses for his servant to ride and drive as well. Shall colonists have their horses? And blood'uns, if you please, good Lord. And not my London gentlemen? No, no. We'll show him another pair of shoes than that Pip, won't us?" He took out of his pocket a great thick pocket-book, bursting with papers, and tossed it on the table. "'There's something worth spending in that there book, dear boy. It's yourn. All I've got ain't mine. It's yourn. Don't you be afeard on it. There's more where that come from. I've come to the old country for to see my gentleman spend his money like a gentleman. That would be my pleasure.' My pleasure, will be fur to see him do it. And blast you all!" He wound up, looking round the room, and snapping his fingers once, with a loud snap, "'Blast you, every one, from the judge in his wig, to the colonist a-stirring up the dust. I'll show a better gentleman, and the whole kit on you, put together.' "'Stop!' said I, almost in a frenzy of fear and dislike. "'I want to speak to you. I want to know what is to be done. I want to know how you are to be kept out of danger. How long you are going to stay. What projects you have." "'Looky' here, Pip,' said he, laying his hand on my arm in a suddenly altered and subdued manner, First of all, looky' here. I forgot myself half a minute ago. What I said was low. That's what it was. Low. Look it here, Pip. Look over it. I ain't a-going to be low." First, I resumed, half groaning,—what precautions can be taken against your being recognized and seized?" No, dear boy," he said in the same tone as before,—that don't go first. Lowness goes first. I ain't took so many years to make a gentleman, not without knowing. What's due to him? Look here, Pip. I was low. That's why I was. Low. Look over it, dear boy. Some sense of the grimly ludicrous moved me to a fretful laugh, as I replied, I have looked over it. In heaven's name, don't harp upon it. Yes, but look here, he persisted. Dear boy, I ain't come so fur." Not for it to be low. Now, go on, dear boy. You was a saying. How are you to be guided from the danger you have incurred?" Well, dear boy, the danger ain't so great. Without I was informed again, the danger ain't so much to signify. There's Jaggers, and there's Wemmick, and there's you. Who else is there to inform? Is there no chance person who might identify you in the street? Said I. Well, he returned. There ain't many, nor yet I don't intend to advertise myself in the newspaper by the name of A. M. Come back for Botany Bay, and years have rolled away, and who's to gain by it? Still, look here, Pip. If the danger had been fifty times as great, I should have come to see you. Mind you, just the same. And how long do you remain?" "'How long?' said he, taking his black pipe from his mouth and dropping his jaw as he stared at me. "'I'm not a-going back. I've come for good.' "'Where are you to live?' said I. "'What is to be done with you? Where will you be safe?' "'Dear boy,' he returned. There is disguise and wigs can be bought for money, and there is hair-powder, and spectacles, and black clothes, shorts, and what not. Others has done it safe afore, and what others has done afore, others can do again. As to the where and how of living, dear boy, give me your own opinions on it." "'You take it smoothly now,' said I. "'But you were very serious last night when you swore to his death?" "'And so, I swear, it is death,' said he, putting his pipe back in his mouth, "'and death by the rope, in the open street, not far from this. And it's serious, that you should fully understand it to be so. What then, when that's once done? Here I am. To go back now would be as bad as to stand ground. worse. Besides, Pip, I am here, because I have meant it by you, years and years. As to what I dare, I am a old bird now, as has dared all manner of traps, since first he was fledged, and I am not afeard to perch upon a scarecrow. If there is death hid inside of it, there is, and let him come out, and I'll face him, and then I'll believe in him, and not a now. Let me have a look at my gentleman again." Once more he took me by both hands, and surveyed me with an air of admiring proprietorship, smoking with great complacency all the while. It appeared to me that I could do no better than secure him some quiet lodging hard by, of which he might take possession when Herbert returned, whom I expected in two or three days. That the secret must be confided to Herbert, as a matter of unavoidable necessity, even if I could, have put the immense relief I should derive from sharing it with him out of the question, was plain to me. But it was by no means so plain to mister Provis. Provost—I resolved to call him by that name—who reserved his consent to Herbert's participation, until he should have seen him, and formed a favourable judgment of his physiognomy. "'And even then, dear boy,' said he, pulling a greasy little clasped, black testament out of his pocket.
1: We'll have him on his
0: oath! To state that my terrible patron carried this little black book about the world, solely to swear people on in cases of emergency, would be to state what I never quite established. But this I can say, that I never knew him put it to any other use. The book itself had the appearance of having been stolen from some court of justice. And perhaps his knowledge of its antecedents, combined with his own experience in that wise, gave him a reliance on its powers as a sort of legal spell or charm. On this first occasion of his producing it, I recalled how he had made me swear fidelity in the churchyard long ago, and how he had descried himself, last night, as always swearing to his resolutions in his solitude. As he was at present dressed in a seafaring slop-suit in which he looked as if he had some parrots and cigars to dispose of, I next discussed with him what dress he should wear. He cherished an extraordinary belief in the virtues of shorts as a disguise, and had in his own mind sketched a dress for himself that would have made him something between a dean and a dentist. It was with considerable difficulty that I won him over to the assumption of a dress more like a prosperous farmer's and we arranged that he should cut his hair close, and wear a little powder. Lastly, as he had not yet been seen by the laundress or her niece, he was to keep himself out of their view, until his change of dress was made. It would seem a simple matter to decide on these precautions, but in my dazed, not to say distracted state, it took so long, that I did not get out to further them until two or three in the afternoon. He was to remain shut up in the chambers, while I was gone, and was on no account to open the door. There being, to my knowledge, a respectable lodging-house in Essex Street, the back of which looked into the temple, and was almost within hail of my windows, I first of all repaired to that house, and was so fortunate as to secure the second floor for my uncle, Mr. Provis. I then went from shop to shop making such purchases as were necessary to the change in his appearance. This business transacted, I turned my face, on my own account, to Little Britain. Mr. Jaggers was at his desk, but, seeing me enter, got up immediately, and stood before his fire. "'Now, Pip,' said he, "'be careful.' "'I will, sir,' I returned, for, coming along, I had thought well of what I was going to say. "'Don't commit yourself,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'and don't commit any one. You understand? Any one. Don't tell me anything. I don't want to know anything. I am not curious.' Of course I saw that he knew the man was come. "'I merely want, Mr. Jaggers,' said I, "'to assure myself that what I have been told is true." I have no hope of its being untrue, but at least I may verify it." Mr. Jaggers nodded. "'But did you say, told or informed?' he asked me, with his head on one side, and not looking at me, but looking in a listening way at the floor. "'Told' would seem to imply verbal communication. You can't have verbal communication with a man in New South Wales, you know. I will say, informed, Mr. Jaggers." Good. I have been informed by a person named Abel Magwitch that he is the benefactor so long unknown to me. That is the man, said Mr. Jaggers, in New South Wales. And only he," said I. And only he," said Mr. Jaggers, I am not so unreasonable, sir, as to think You were all responsible for my mistakes, and wrong conclusions. But I always supposed it was Miss Havisham. "'As you say, Pip,' returned Mr. Jaggers, turning his eyes upon me coolly, and taking a bite at his forefinger, "'I am not at all responsible for that.' And yet, it looked so like it, sir." I pleaded with a downcast heart. "'Not a particle of evidence, Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers. Shaking his head and gathering up his skirts take nothing on its looks take everything on evidence There's no better rule I Have no more to say Said I with a sigh after standing silent for a little while I Have verified my information and there's an end and Magwitch in New South Wales having at last disclosed himself Said mr. Jaggers You will comprehend, Pip, how rigidly throughout my communication with you, I have always adhered to the strict line of fact. There has never been the least departure from the strict line of fact. You are quite aware of that?" "'Quite, sir. I communicated to Magwitch, in New South Wales, when he first wrote to me, from New South Wales, the caution that he must not expect me ever to deviate from the strict line of fact, I also communicated to him another caution. He appeared to me to have obscurely hinted in his letter, at some distant idea he had of seeing you in England here. I cautioned him that I must hear no more of that. That he was not at all likely to obtain a pardon, that he was expatriated, for the term of his natural life, and that. His presenting himself in this country would be an act of felony, rendering him liable to the extreme penalty of the law. I gave Magwitch that caution," said Mr. Jaggers, looking hard at me. I wrote it to New South Wales. He guided himself by it, no doubt. No doubt," said I. I have been informed by Wemmick," pursued Mr. Jaggers, still looking hard at me that he has received a letter, under date Portsmouth, from a colonist of the name of uh, Purvis, uh, or—or Provis," I suggested. "'Or Provis. Uh, Thank you, Pip. Uh, Perhaps it is Provis? Perhaps you know it's Provis?' "'Yes,' said I. "'You know it's Provis? A letter, under date Portsmouth, from a colonist of the name of Provis? asking for the particulars of your address, on behalf of Magwitch. Wemmick sent him the particulars. I understand by return of post. Probably it is through Provis that you have received the explanation of Magwitch in New South Wales." "'It came through Provis,' I replied. "'Good-day, Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, offering his hand. "'Glad to have seen you. In writing by post to Magwitch, in New South Wales, or in communicating with him through Provis, have the goodness to mention that the particulars and vouchers of our long account shall be sent to you, together with the balance, for there is still a balance remaining. Good day, Pip." We shook hands, and he looked hard at me, as long as he could see me. I turned at the door, and he was still looking hard at me while the two vile casts on the shelf, seemed to be trying to get their eyelids open, and to force out of their swollen throats, oh, what a man he is! Wemmick was out, and though he had been at his desk, he could have done nothing for me. I went straight back to the temple, where I found the terrible provis drinking rum and water, and smoking negro head, in safety. Next day, the clothes I had ordered all came home and he put them on. Whatever he put on, became him less. It dismally seemed to me, than what he had worn before. To my thinking, there was something in him that made it hopeless to attempt to disguise him. The more I dressed him, and the better I dressed him, the more he looked like the slouching fugitive on the marshes. This effect on my anxious fancy was partly referable, no doubt, to his old face and manner growing more familiar to me. But I believe, too, that he dragged one of his legs, as if there was still a weight of iron on it, and that from head to foot there was convict in the very grain of the man. The influences of his solitary hut-life were upon him besides, and gave him a savage air that no dress could tame. Added to these were the influences of his subsequent branded life among men, and crowning all his consciousness that he was dodging and hiding now. In all his ways of sitting and standing, and eating and drinking, of brooding about in a high-shouldered reluctant style, of taking out his great horn-handled jack-knife, and wiping it on his legs, and cutting his food, of lifting light glasses and cups to his lips, as if they were clumsy pannikins, of chopping a wedge off his bread, and soaking up with it the last fragments of gravy round and round his plate, as if to make the most of an allowance, and then drying his finger-ends on it and then swallowing it. In these ways, a thousand other small, nameless instances, arising every minute in the day, there was prisoner, felon, bondsman, plain as plain could be. It had been his own idea to wear that touch of powder, and I had conceded the powder after overcoming the shorts. But I can compare the effect of it, when on, to nothing but the probable effect of rouge upon the dead. So awful was the manner in which everything in him, that it was the most desirable to repress, started through that thin layer of pretence, and seemed to come blazing out at the crown of his head. It was abandoned as soon as tried, and he wore his grizzled hair cut short. Words cannot tell what a sense I had, at the same time, of the dreadful mystery that he was to me. When he fell asleep of an evening, with his knotted hands clenching the sides of the easy chair and his bald head tattooed with deep wrinkles falling forward on his breast, I would sit and look at him, wondering what he had done, and loading him with all the crimes in the calendar, until the impulse was powerful on me to start up and fly from him. Every hour so increased my abhorrence of him, that I even think I might have yielded to this impulse and the first agonies of being so haunted, notwithstanding all he had done for me, and the risk he ran but for the knowledge that Herbert must soon come back. Once I actually did start out of bed in the night, and begin to dress myself in my worst clothes, hurriedly intending to leave him there with everything else I possessed, and enlist for India as a private soldier. I doubt if a ghost could have been more terrible to me, up in those lonely rooms in the long evenings and long nights, with the wind and the rain always rushing by. A ghost could not have been taken and hanged on my account and the consideration that he could be, and the dread that he would be, were no small addition to my horrors. When he was not asleep, or playing a complicated kind of patience with a ragged pack of cards of his own—a game that I never saw before or since, and in which he recorded his winnings by sticking his jackknife into the table—when he was not engaged in either of these pursuits, he would ask me to read to him. "'Foreign language, dear boy.' while I complied, he, not comprehending a single word, would stand before the fire, surveying me with the air of an exhibitor, and I would see him, between the fingers of the hand with which I shaded my face, appealing in dumb-show to the furniture, to take notice of my proficiency. The imaginary student, pursued by the misshapen creature he had impiously made, was not more wretched than I, pursued by the creature who had made me and recoiling from him with a stronger repulsion, the more he admired me, and the fonder he was of me. This is written of, I am sensible, as if it had lasted a year. It lasted about five days. Expecting Herbert all the time, I dared not go out, except when I took provis for an airing after dark. At length one evening, when dinner was over, and I had dropped into a slumber quite worn out, for my nights had been agitated. And my rest broken by fearful dreams, I was roused by the welcome footstep on the staircase. Provis, who had been asleep too, staggered up at the noise I made, and in an instant I saw his jackknife shining in his hand. Quiet, it's Herbert, I said, and Herbert came bursting in, with the airy freshness of six hundred miles of France upon him. Handle, my dear fellow how are you and again how are you and again how are you i seem to have been gone a twelvemonth why so i must have been for you have grown quite thin and pale handle my hello i beg your pardon he was stopped in his running on and in his shaking hands with me by seeing provis provis regarded him with a fixed attention was slowly putting up his jack knife, and groping in another pocket for something else "'Herbert, my dear friend,' said I, shutting the double doors, while Herbert stood staring and wondering, "'something very strange has happened. This is a visitor of mine.' "'It's all right, dear boy,' said Provis, coming forward with his little clasped black book, and then addressing himself to Herbert. "'Take it in your right hand. Lord strike you dead on the spot, if ever you split." in any way, some ever, kiss it." "'Do so as he wishes it,' I said to Herbert. So Herbert, looking at me with a friendly uneasiness and amazement, complied, and Provis, immediately shaking hands with him, said, "'Now you're on your oath, you know. And never believe me on mine, if Pip shan't make a gentleman on you.'" End of Chapter 40 Chapter forty one of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty one In vain should I attempt to describe the astonishment and disquiet of Herbert when he and I and Provis sat down before the fire, and I recounted the whole of the secret enough that I saw my own feelings reflected in Herbert's face, and, not least among them, my repugnance towards the man who had done so much for me. What would alone have set a division between that man and us, if there had been no other dividing circumstance, was his triumph in my story. Saving his troublesome sense of having been low, on one occasion since his return, on which point he began to hold forth to Herbert the moment my revelation was finished, he had no perception of the possibility of my finding any fault with my good fortune. His boast that he had made me a gentleman, and that he had come to see me support the character on his ample resources, was made for me quite as much as for himself, and that it was a highly agreeable boast to both of us, and that we must both be very proud of it, was a conclusion quite established in his own mind. The oh! "'Lucky here, Pip's comrade,' he said to Herbert, after having discoursed for some time, "'I know very well, that once since I come back, for half a minute, I've been low.' I said to Pip, "'I knowed as I had been low. But don't you fret yourself on that score. I ain't made Pip a gentleman, and Pip ain't a-going to make you a gentleman, not for me not to know.' What's due to you both? Dear boy and Pip's comrade, you two may count upon me always having a genteel muzzle on. Muzzled I have been since that half a minute, when I was betrayed into aloneness. Muzzled I am at the present time. Muzzled I ever will be." Herbert said, "'Certainly,' but looked as if there were no specific consolation in this and remained perplexed and dismayed. We were anxious for the time when he would go to his lodging and leave us together, but he was evidently jealous of leaving us together, and sat late. It was midnight before I took him round to Essex Street, and saw him safely in at his own dark door. When it closed upon him, I experienced the first moment of relief I had known since the night of his arrival. Never quite free from an uneasy remembrance of the man on the stairs. I had always looked about me in taking my guest out after dark, and in bringing him back, and I looked about me now. Difficult as it is in a large city to avoid the suspicion of being watched, when the mind is conscious of danger in that regard, I could not persuade myself that any of the people within sight cared about my movements. The few who were passing passed on their several ways, and the street was empty when I turned back into the temple. Nobody had come out at the gate with us. Nobody went in at the gate with me. As I crossed by the fountain, I saw his lighted back windows looking bright and quiet. And, when I stood for a few moments in the doorway of the building where I lived, before going up the stairs, Garden Court was as still and lifeless as the staircase was when I ascended it. Herbert received me with open arms, and I had never felt before so blessedly what it is to have a friend. When he had spoken some sound words of sympathy and encouragement, we sat down to consider the question, what was to be done? The chair that Provis had occupied, still remaining where it had stood, for he had a barrack way with him of hanging about one spot, in one unsettled manner, and going through one round of observances with his pipe, and his negro head, and his jack-knife, and his pack of cards, and what not as it were all put down for him on a slate. I say, his chair remaining where it had stood, Herbert unconsciously took it, but next moment started out of it, pushed it away, and took another. He had no occasion to say, after that, that he had conceived an aversion for my patron. Neither had I occasion to confess my own. We interchanged that confidence without shaping a syllable. What? said I to Herbert, when he was safe in another chair. What is to be done?" "'My poor dear Handel,' he replied, holding his head, "'I am too stunned to think.' So was I, Herbert, when the blow first fell. Still, something must be done. He is intent upon various new expenses—horses, and carriages, and lavish appearances of all kinds. He must be stopped somehow. You mean that you can't accept—how can I?" I interposed, as Herbert paused. "'Think of him! Look at him!' An involuntary shudder passed over both of us. "'Yet I am afraid the dreadful truth is, Herbert, that he is attached to me—strongly attached to me. Was there ever such a fate?' "'My poor dear Handel!' Herbert repeated. "'Then,' said I, "'after all—' Stopping short here. Never taking another penny from him. Think what I owe him already. Then again, I am heavily in debt, very heavily for me, who have now no expectations. And I have been bred to no calling, and I am fit for nothing. Well, well, well," Herbert remonstrated,--"don't say, fit for nothing. What am I fit for? I know only one thing that I am fit for, and that is to go for a soldier. And I might have gone, my dear Herbert, but for the prospect of taking counsel with your friendship and affection." Of course I broke down there. And of course Herbert, beyond seizing a warm grip of my hand, pretended not to know it. "'Anyhow, my dear Handel,' said he presently, "soldiering won't do. If you were to renounce this patronage and these favours. I suppose you would do so with some faint hope of one day repaying what you have already had. Not very strong, that hope, if you went soldiering. Besides, it's absurd. You would be infinitely better in Clarica's house, small as it is. I am working up towards a partnership, you know." Poor fellow! He little suspected with whose money. But there is another question," said Herbert. This is an ignorant, determined man, who has long had one fixed idea. More than that, he seems to me-I may misjudge him-to be a man of a desperate and fierce character. I know he is, I returned. Let me tell you what evidence I have seen of it. And I told him what I had not mentioned in my narrative of that encounter with the other convict. See, then, said Herbert, think of this. He comes here at the peril of his life for the realization of his fixed idea. In the moment of realization, After all his toil and waiting, you cut the ground from under his feet, destroy his idea, and make his gains worthless to him. Do you see nothing that he might do, under the disappointment?" I have seen it, Herbert, and dreamed of it, ever since the fatal night of his arrival. Nothing has been in my thoughts so distinctly as his putting himself in the way of being taken. Then you may rely upon it," said Herbert, that there would be great danger of his doing it. That is his power over you as long as he remains in England, and that would be his reckless course if you forsook him. I was so struck by the horror of this idea, which had weighed upon me from the first, and the working out of which would make me regard myself, in some sort, as his murderer, that I could not rest in my chair, but began pacing to and fro. I said to Herbert, meanwhile, that even if Provost were recognized and taken, in spite of himself, I should be wretched as the cause, however innocently. Yes, even though I was so wretched in having him at large and near me, and even though I would far, far rather have worked at the forge all the days of my life than I would ever have come to this. But there was no staving off the question. What was to be done? The first, and the main thing to be done," said Herbert, "'is to get him out of England. You'll have to go with him then he may be induced to go. But get him where I will! Could I prevent his coming back?" My good handle! Is it not obvious, that with Newgate, and the next street, there must be far greater hazard in your breaking your mind to him, and making him reckless here, than elsewhere? If a pretext to get him away could be made out of that other convict, or out of anything else in his life, now! There again," said I. Stopping before Herbert, with my open hands held out, as if they contained the desperation of the case, I know nothing of his life. It has always made me mad to sit here of a night, and see him before me, so bound up with my fortunes and misfortunes, and yet so unknown to me, except as the miserable wretch who terrified me two days in my childhood. Herbert got up, and linked his arm in mine, and we slowly walked to and fro together, studying the carpet. Handle, said Herbert, stopping, you feel convinced that you can take no further benefits from him, do you? Fully. Surely you would too, if you were in my place. And you feel convinced that you must break with him? Herbert, can you ask me? And you have, and are bound to have, that tenderness for the life he has risked on your account, that you must save him, if possible, from throwing it away. Then you must get him out of England before you stir a finger to extricate yourself. That done? Extricate yourself in heaven's name, and we'll see it out together, dear old boy." It was a comfort to shake hands upon it, and walk up and down again, with only that done. Now, Herbert," said I, with reference to gaining some knowledge of his history, there is but one way that I know of. I must ask him point-blank. Yes. Ask him said Herbert, when we sit at breakfast in the morning, for he had said on taking leave of Herbert, that he would come to breakfast with us. With this project formed, we went to bed. I had the wildest dreams concerning him, and woke unrefreshed. I woke, too, to recover the fear which I had lost in the night, of his being found out as a returned transport. Waking, I never lost that fear. He came round at the appointed time took out his jack-knife, and sat down to his meal. He was full of plans for his gentleman's coming out strong and like a gentleman, and urged me to begin speedily upon the pocket-book which he had left in my possession. He considered the chambers and his own lodging as temporary residences, and advised me to look out at once for a fashionable crib near Hyde Park, in which he could have a shake-down. When he had made an end of his breakfast, and was wiping his knife on his leg, I said to him, without a word of preface, After you were gone last night, I told my friend of the struggle that the soldiers found you engaged in, on the marshes, when we came up. You remember?" "'Remember?' said he. "'I think so.' We want to know something about that man—and about you. It is strange to know no more about either—and particularly you—than I was able to tell last night. Is not this as good a time as another for our knowing more?" "'Well,' he said, after consideration, "'you're on your oath, you know, Pips Conrad.' "'Assuredly,' replied Herbert. "'As to anything I say, you know,' he insisted, "'the oath applies to all.' "'I understand it to do so. And looky here, whatever I done is worked out and paid for," he insisted again. So be it. He took out his black pipe, and was going to fill it with negro head, when, looking at the tangle of tobacco in his hand, he seemed to think it might perplex the thread of his narrative. He put it back again, stuck his pipe in a buttonhole of his coat, spread a hand on each knee, and, after turning an angry eye on the fire for a few silent moments, looked round at us. And said what follows. End of chapter forty one. Chapter forty two of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty two. Dear boy. And Pip's comrade, I am not a-gone for it to tell you my life, like a song, or a story-book, but to give it to you short and handy. I'll put it at once into a mouthful of English. In jail, and out of jail, in jail, and out of jail, in jail, and out of jail. There, you got it. That's my life, pretty much, down to such times as I got shipped off arter Pip stood my friend. I've been done everything too, pretty well, except hanged. I've been locked up, as much as a silver tea-kettle. I've been carted here, and carted there, and put out of this town, and put out of that town, and stuck in the stocks, and whipped, and worried, and drove. I've no more notion where I was born than you have, if so much. I first became aware of myself, down in Essex. Thieving turnips for my living. Someone had run away from me, a man, a tinker, and he took the fire with him, and left me worry cold. I knowed my name to be Magwitch, christened Abel. How did I know it? Much as I knowed the birds' names in the hedges, to be chaffinch, sparrow, thrush. I might have thought it was all lies together. Only as the birds' names come out true. I suppose mine did. So fur as I could find, there wa'n't a soul that see young Abel Magwitch, with as little on him as in him, but what caught frightened him, and either drove him off, or took him up. I was took up, took up, took up, to that extent that I regularly growed up, took up. This is the way it was, that when I was a ragged little creetur, as much to be pitied as ever, I see. Not that I looked in a glass, for there warn't many insides of furnished houses known to me. I got the name of being hardened. This is a terrible hardened one. They says to prison visitors, picking out me. May be set to live in jails, this boy. Then they looked at me, and I looked at them, and they measured my head. Some on him. They had better uh, measured my stomach and others on em give me tracts, what I couldn't read, and made me speeches, what I couldn't understand. They always went on again me about the devil, but what the devil was I to do? I must put something in my stomach, mustn't I? Howsoever, I'm a-getting low, and I know what's due. Dear boy and Pip's comrade, don't you be afeard of me being low. Tramping, begging, thieving working sometimes when I could, though that wa'n't as often as you might think, till you put the question whether you would have been over-ready to give me work yourselves. A bit of a poacher, a bit of a labourer, a bit of a waggoner, a bit of a haymaker, a bit of a hawker, a bit of most things that don't pay and lead to trouble. I got to be a man." A deserting soldier in a traveller's rest, what lay hid up to the chin under a lot of taters, learnt me to read. And a travelling giant, what signed his name at a penny a time, learnt me to write. I warn't locked up as often now as formerly, but I wore out my good share of key metal still. At Epsom races, a matter of over twenty years ago, I got acquainted with a man whose skull I'd crack with this poker like the claw of a lobster if I'd got it on this hob. His right name was Compeyson, and that's the man, dear boy what you see me a pounding in the ditch, according to what you truly told your comrade arter I was gone last night. He set up for a gentleman, this Compeyson, and he'd been to a public boarding-school, and had learning. He was a smooth one to talk, and was a dab at the ways of gentlefolks. He was good looking too. He was the night afore the great race, when I found him on the heath, in a booth that I knowed on. Him, and some more, was a-sitting among the tables when I went in, and the landlord, which had a knowledge of me, and was a sporting one, called him out, and said, I think this is a man that might suit you, meaning I was. Compassion, he looks at me very noticing, and I look at him. He has a watch, and a chain, and a ring, and a breast-pin, and a handsome suit of clothes. To judge from appearances you're out of luck, says Compeyson to me. Yes, master, and I've never been in it much. I had come out of Kingston jail last on a vagrancy committal, not but what it might have been for something else, but it warn't. Luck changes, says Compeyson. Perhaps yours is going to change. I says, I hope it may be so. There's room. What can you do? says Compeyson. Eat and drink, I says, if you'll find the materials. Compeyson laughed, looked at me again, very noticing, give me five shillings, and appointed me for next night, same place. I went to Compeyson next night, same place, and Compeyson took me on to be his man and pardner, and what was Compeyson's business in which we was to go, partners? Compeyson's business was the swindling, right in forging, stolen bank-note passing, and such like. All sorts of traps, as Compeyson could set with his head, and keep his own legs out of, and get the profits from, and let another man in for, was Compeyson's business. He'd no more heart than an iron file. He was as cold as death and he had the head of the devil aforementioned there was another in with compeyson as was called arthur not as being so christened but as a surname he was in a decline and was a shadow to look at him and compeyson had been in a bad thing with a rich lady some years afore and they'd made a pot of money by it but compeyson betted and gamed and he'd have run through the king's taxes so, Arthur was a dying, and a dying poor, and with horrors on him, and Compeyson's wife, which Compeyson kicked mostly, was having pity on him when she could, and Compeyson was having pity on nothing and nobody. I might a took warning by Arthur, but I didn't, and I won't pretend I was particular, for where'd be the good on it, dear boy and comrade? So I begun wi' Compeyson, and a poor tool I was in his hands. Arthur lived at the top of Compeyson's house, over nigh Brentford it was, and Compeyson kept a careful account agin' him for board and lodging, in case he should ever get better to work it out. But Arthur soon settled the account. A second or third time, as ever I see him, he come a-tearing down at the parlour, late at night, in only a flannel gown with his hair all in a sweat, and he says to Compeyson's wife, Sally, she very really is upstairs along of me now, and I can't get rid of her. She's all in white, he says, with white flowers in her hair, and she's awful mad, and she's got a shroud hanging over her arm, and she says she'll put it on me at five in the morning, says Compeyson. "'Why, you fool, don't you know she's got a living body? "'And how should she be up there, "'without coming through the door in at the window and up the stairs?' "'I don't know how she's there,' says Arthur, "'shivering dreadful with the horrors. "'But she's standing in the corner, at the foot of the bed, awful mad, "'and over where her heart's broke. "'You broke it. There's drops of blood!" Compeyson spoke hardy, but he was always a coward. "'Go up along o' this driveling sick man,' he says to his wife. "'A magwitch? Lend her a hand, will you?' But he never come nigh himself. Compeyson's wife and me took him up to bed again, and he raved most dreadful. "'Why, look it her!' He cries out, She's a-shakin' the shroud at me. Don't you see her? Look in her eyes. Ain't it awful to see her so mad? Next he cries, She'll put it on me, and then I'm done for. Take it away from her, take it away. And then he catched hold of us, and kept on a-talking to her, and a of her, till I half believed I see her myself. Compassion's wife, being used to him, give him some liquor to get the horrors off, and and by-and-by he quieted. Oh, she's gone. Has her keeper been for her? He says. Yes, says Compassion's wife. Did you tell him to lock her, and bar her in? Yes. And to take that ugly thing away from her? Yes, yes. All right. You're good, creature," he says. Don't leave me, whatever you do, and thank you. He rested pretty quiet till it might want a few minutes of five, and then he starts up with a scream, and screams out, (laughs) Here she is. She's got the shroud again. She's unfolding it. She's coming out of the corner she's coming to the bed hold me both on you one of each side don't let her touch me with it ha she missed me that time oh don't let her throw it over my shoulders don't let her lift me up to get it round me she's lifting me up keep me down then he lifted himself up hard and was dead Compeyson took it easy as a good riddance for both sides him and we were soon busy and first he swore me, being ever artful, on my own book, this here little black book, dear boy, what I swore your comrade on. Not to go into the things that Compeyson planned and I done, which would take a week. I'll simply say to you, dear boy, and Pip's comrade, that that man got me into such nets as made me his black slave. I was always in debt to him, always under his thumb always a working always a getting into danger he was younger than me but he got craft and he got learning and he overmatched me five hundred times told and no mercy my missus as i had the hard time we stop though i ain't brought her in he looked about him in a confused way as if he had lost his place in the book of his remembrance and he turned his face to the fire and spread his hands broader on his knees and lifted them off, and put them on again. There ain't no need to go into it," he said, looking round once more. The time with Compassion was almost as hard a time as ever I had. That said, all said, did I tell you as I was tried alone, for misdemeanour, while with Compassion? I answered no. Well," he said, I was and got convicted, as to took up on suspicion that was twice or three times in the four or five year that it lasted, but evidence was wanting. At last me and Compayson was both committed for felony, on a charge of putting stolen notes in circulation, and there was other charges behind. Compayson says to me, Separate defenses, no communication, and that was all. And I was so miserable poor, that I sold all the clothes I had, except what hung on my back, before I could get jaggers. When we was put in the dock, I noticed, first of all, what a gentleman Compeyson looked, we his curly hair, and his black clothes, and his white pocket handkerchief, and what a common sort of a wretch I looked. When the prosecution opened, and the evidence was put short aforehand, I noticed how heavy it all bore on me, and how light on him. When the evidence was given the box, I noticed how it was always me that had come forward, and could be swore to, how it was always me that the money had been paid to, how it was always me that had seemed to work the thing and get the profit. But, when the defence come on, then I see the plan plainer. For, says the counsellor for compassion. My lords and gentlemen, here you has afore you, side by side, two persons as your eyes can separate wide, one, the younger, well brought up, who will be spoke to as such, one, the elder, ill broke up, who will be spoke to as such, one, the younger, seldom if ever seen in this here transactions, and only suspected, t'other, the elder, always seen in em, and always we as guilt brought home. Can you doubt if there is but one in it, which is the one, and if there is two in it, which is much the worst one, and such-like. And when he come to character, wanted Compassion as had been to the school, and wanted his schoolfellows as was in this position and that, and wanted him as had been knowed by witnesses in such clubs and societies, and knelt to his disadvantage. And wa'n't it me, as had been tried afore, and as had been knowed up hill and down dale in bridewells and lock-ups? And when it comes to speech-making, wa'n't it compassion, as could speak to him, with his face dropping every now and then into his white pocket handkerchief. Ah! And with verses in his speech, too! And wa'n't it me, as could only say, Gentlemen, this man at my side is a most precious rascal! And when the verdict come? it Compaisson as was recommended to Mercy, on account of good character and bad company, and giving up all the information he could agen me, and wanted me as got never a word but guilty. And when I says to compeyson, once out of this court I'll smash that face of yourn, ain't it compeyson as pays the judge to be protected, and gets two turnkeys stood betwixt us? And when we're sentenced? Ain't it him as gets seven year, and me fourteen, and ain't it him as the judge is sorry for, because he might ha done so well, and ain't it me as the judge perceives to be a old offender of a violent passion, likely to come to worse?" He had worked himself into a state of great excitement, but he checked it, took two or three short breaths, swallowed as often, and stretching out his hand towards me, said, in a reassuring manner, "'I ain't a-going to be low, dear boy. He had so heated himself, that he took out his handkerchief, and wiped his face and head and neck and hands, before he could go on. I had said to Compeyson that I would smash that face of his, and I swore Lord Smash Mine to do it. We was in the same prison-ship, but I couldn't get him for long, though I tried. At last I come behind him, and hit him on the cheek to turn him round, and get a smashing one at him when I was seen and seized. The black hole of that ship wa'n't a strong one, to a judge of black holes that could swim and dive. I escaped to the shore, and I was a-hiding among the graves there, envying them, as was in em, and all over, when I first see my boy." He regarded me with a look of affection, that made him almost abhorrent to me again, though I had felt great pity for him. By my boy, I was give to understand, as compassion was out on them marshes too. Upon my soul, I half believe he escaped in his terror to get quit of me, not knowing it was me as had gone ashore. I hunted him down, I smashed his face, and now, says I, as the worst thing I can do, caring nothing for myself, I'll drag you back. And I'd have some off towing him by the hair, if it had come to that, and I'd have got him aboard without the soldiers. Of course, he'd much the best of it to the last. His character was so good. He had escaped when he was made half wild by me and my murderous intentions, and his punishment was light. I was put in irons, brought to trial again, and sent for life. I didn't stop for life, dear boy and pips, comrade, being here." He wiped himself again, as he had done before, and then slowly took his tangle of tobacco from his pocket, and plucked his pipe from his buttonhole, and slowly filled it, and began to smoke. Is he dead? I asked, after a silence. Is who dead, dear boy? Compeyson. He hopes I am, if he's alive, you may be sure. With a fierce look, I never heard no more of him. Herbert had been writing with his pencil in the cover of a book. He softly pushed the book over to me, as Provis stood smoking with his eyes on the fire, and I read in it, Young Havisham's name was Arthur. Compeyson is the man who professed to be Miss Havisham's lover. I shut the book, and nodded slightly to Herbert, and put the book by. But we neither of us said anything. And both looked at Provis as he stood smoking by the fire. End of chapter forty two. Chapter forty three of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty three. Why should I pause to ask how much of my shrinking from Provis might be traced to Estella? Why should I loiter on my road, to compare the state of mind in which I had tried to rid myself of the stain of the prison, before meeting her at the coach-office, with the state of mind in which I now reflected on the abyss between Estella, in her pride and beauty, and the return transport whom I harboured? The road would be none the smoother for it, the end would be none the better for it he would not be helped, nor I extenuated. A new fear had been engendered in my mind by his narrative, or rather, his narrative had given form and purpose to the fear that was already there. If Compeyson were alive, and should discover his return, I could hardly doubt the consequence. That Compayson stood in mortal fear of him, neither of the two could know much better than I. And that any such man as that man had been described to be, would hesitate to release himself for good from a dreaded enemy, by the safe means of becoming an informer, was scarcely to be imagined. Never had I breathed, and never would I breathe, or so I resolved, a word of Estella to Provis. But I said to Herbert, that before I could go abroad, I must see both Estella and Miss Havisham. This was when we were left alone on the night of the day when Provost told us his story. I resolved to go out to Richmond next day, and I went. On my presenting myself at Mrs. Brandley's, Estella's maid was called to tell that Estella had gone into the country. Where? To Sartis' house, as usual. Not as usual, I said, for she had never yet gone there without me. When was she coming back? There was an air of reservation in the answer, which increased my perplexity, and the answer was that her maid believed she was only coming back at all for a little while. I could make nothing of this, except that it was meant that I should make nothing of it, and I went home again in complete discomfiture. Another night consultation with Herbert, after Provis was gone home, I always took him home, and always looked well about me, led us to the conclusion that nothing should be said about going abroad until I came back from Miss Havisham's. In the meantime, Herbert and I were to consider separately what it would be best to say, whether we should devise any pretence of being afraid that he was under suspicious observation, or whether I, who had never yet been abroad, should propose an expedition. We both knew that I had but to propose anything, and he would consent. We agreed that his remaining many days in his present hazard was not to be thought of. Next day I had the meanness to feign that I was under a binding promise to go down to Joe, but I was capable of almost any meanness towards Joe or his name. Provis was to be strictly careful while I was gone, and Herbert was to take the charge of him that I had taken. I was to be absent only one night, and, on my return, the gratification of his impatience for my starting as a gentleman on a greater scale was to be begun. It occurred to me then, and as I afterwards found to Herbert also, that he might be best got away across the water, on that pretence, as to make purchases or the like. Having thus cleared the way for my expedition to Miss Havisham's, I set off by the early morning coach, before it was yet light, and was out on the open country road, when the day came creeping on, halting and whimpering and shivering, and wrapped in patches of cloud and rags of mist, like a beggar. When we drove up to the Blue Boar, after a drizzly ride, whom should I see come out under the gateway, toothpick in hand, to look at the coach but Bentley Drummle? As he pretended not to see me, I pretended not to see him. It was a very lame pretense on both sides. The lamer, because we both went into the coffee-room, where he had just finished his breakfast, and where I ordered mine. It was poisonous to me to see him in the town, for I very well knew why he had come there. Pretending to read a smeary newspaper, long out of date, which had nothing half so legible in its local news as the foreign matter of coffee, pickles, fish sauces, gravy, melted butter and wine, with which it was sprinkled all over as if it had taken the measles in a highly irregular form, I sat at my table while he stood before the fire. By degrees, it became an enormous injury to me that he stood before the fire, and I got up, determined to have my share of it. I had to put my hand behind his legs for the poker when I went up to the fireplace to stir the fire, but still pretended not to know him. "'Is this a cut?' said Mr. Drummle. said I, poker in hand,—it's you, is it? How do you do? I was wondering who it was who kept the fire off." With that, I poked tremendously, and having done so, planted myself side by side with Mr. Drummle, my shoulders squared, and I back to the fire. "'You have just come down,' said Mr. Drummle, edging me a little away with his shoulder. "'Yes,' said I edging him a little way with my shoulder. beastly Place,' said Drummle. Your part of the country, I think?' "'Yes,' I assented. "'I'm told it's very like your Shropshire.' "Not in the least like it,' said Drummle. Here Mr. Drummle looked at his boots, and I looked at mine, and then Mr. Drummle looked at my boots, and I looked at his. "'Have you been here long?' I asked, determined not to yield an inch of the fire. "'Long enough to be tired of it,' returned Drummle, pretending to yawn, but equally determined. "'Do you stay here long?' "'Can't say,' answered Mr. Drummle. "'Do you?' "'Can't say,' said I. I felt here, through a tingling in my blood that if Mr. Drummle's shoulder had claimed another hair's breadth of room, I should have jerked him into the window. Equally, that if my own shoulder had urged a similar claim, Mr. Drummle would have jerked me into the nearest box. He whistled a little. So did I. "'Large tract of marshes about here, I believe,' said Drummle. "'Yes, What of that,' said I. Mr. Drummle looked at me and then at my boots, and then said, "'Oh!' and laughed. "'Are you amused, Mr. Dremble?' "'No,' said he, "'not particularly. "'I'm going out for a ride on the saddle. "'I mean to explore those marshes for amusement. "'Out-of-the-way villages there, they tell me, "'curious little public-houses, and smithies, and that.' "'Waiter?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Is that horse of mine ready?' "'Brought round to the door, sir.' "'I say, look here, you, sir. The lady won't ride to-day, the weather won't do. "'Very good, sir.' "'And I don't dine, because I'm going to dine at the ladies. "'Very good, sir.' Then Drummond glanced at me with an insolent triumph on his great jowled face that cut me to the heart, dull as he was, and so exasperated me, that I felt inclined to take him in my arms, as the robber in the story-book is said to have taken the old lady, and seat him on the fire. One thing was manifest to both of us, and that was, that until relief came, neither of us could relinquish the fire. There we stood, well squared up before it. Shoulder to shoulder and foot to foot, with our hands behind us, not budging an inch. The horse was visible outside in the drizzle of the door. My breakfast was put out on the table. Drummle's was cleared away. The waiter invited me to begin. I nodded. We both stood our ground. "'Have you been to the grove since?' said Drummle. "'No,' said I. I had quite enough of the finches the last time I was there. Was that when we had a difference of opinion?" "'Yes,' I replied very shortly. "'Come, come, they let you off easily enough,' sneered Drummle. "'You shouldn't have lost your temper.' "'Mr. Drummle,' said I, "'you are not competent to give advice on that subject. When I lose my temper. Not that I admit, having done so on that occasion. I don't throw glasses." "'I do,' said Drummle. After glancing at him once or twice, in an increased state of smouldering ferocity, I said, "'Mr. Drummle, I did not seek this conversation, and I don't think an agreeable one.' "'I'm sure it's not,' said he, superciliously over his shoulder. I don't think anything about it. And therefore, I went on, with your leave, I will suggest that we hold no kind of communication in future." "'Quite my opinion,' said Drummle, "'and what I should have suggested myself, or done more likely, without suggesting, but don't lose your temper. Haven't you lost enough without that?' "'What do you mean, sir?' Waiter," said Drummle, by way of answering me. The waiter reappeared. Look here, you, sir, you quite understand that the young lady don't ride to-day, and that I dine at the young lady's? Quite so, sir." When the waiter had felt my fast-cooling teapot with the palm of his hand, and had looked imploringly at me, and had gone out, Drummle, careful not to move the shoulder next to me, took a cigar from his pocket, and bit the end off, but showed no sign of stirring. Choking and boiling as I was, I felt that we could not go a word further, without introducing Estella's name, which I could not endure to hear him utter. And therefore I looked stonily at the opposite wall, as if there were no one present, and forced myself to silence. How long! We might have remained in this ridiculous position, it is impossible to say. But for the incursion of three thriving farmers, led on by the waiter, I think, who came into the coffee-room unbuttoning their great coats and rubbing their hands, and before whom, as they charged at the fire, we were obliged to give way. I saw him through the window, seizing his horse's mane, and mounting in his blundering, brutal manner, and sidling and backing away. I thought he was gone, when he came back, calling for a light for the cigar in his mouth, which he had forgotten. A man in a dust-colored dress appeared with what was wanted. I could not have said from where, whether from the inn-yard, or the street, or where not, and as Drummond leaned down from the saddle, and lighted his cigar, and laughed, with a jerk of his head towards the coffee-room windows, the slouching shoulders and ragged hair of this man, whose back was towards me reminded me of Orlick. Too heavily out of sorts to care much at the time, whether it were he or no, or after all to touch the breakfast, I washed the weather and the journey from my face and hands, and went out to the memorable old house, that it would have been so much the better for me never to have entered, never to have seen. End of chapter 43 Chapter forty four of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty four. In the room where the dressing table stood, and where the wax candles burnt on the wall, I found Miss Havisham and Estella. Miss Havisham seated on a settee near the fire and Estella on a cushion at her feet. Estella was knitting, and Miss Havisham was looking on. They both raised their eyes as I went in, and both saw an alteration in me. I derived that from the look they interchanged. And what wind, said Miss Havisham, blows you here, Pip? Though she looked steadily at me, I saw that she was rather confused. Estella pausing a moment in her knitting with her eyes upon me, and then going on, I fancied that I read in the action of her fingers, as plainly as if she had told me in the dumb alphabet, that she perceived I had discovered my real benefactor. "'Miss Havisham,' said I, "'I went to Richmond yesterday, to speak to Estella, and finding that some wind had blown her here, I followed. Miss Havisham motioning to me for the third or fourth time to sit down. I took the chair by the dressing-table, which I had often seen her occupy. With all that ruin at my feet and about me, it seemed a natural place for me that day. What I had to say to Estella, Miss Havisham, I will say before you presently, in a few moments. It will not surprise you. It will not displease you. I am as unhappy as you can ever have meant me to be." Miss Havisham continued to look steadily at me. I could see in the action of Estella's fingers as they worked, that she attended to what I said. But she did not look up. I have found out who my patron is. It is not a fortunate discovery, and is not likely ever to enrich me in reputation, station, fortune, anything. There are reasons why I must say no more of that. It is not my secret, but another's." As I was silent for a while, looking at Estella, and considering how to go on, Miss Havisham repeated, "'It is not your secret, but another's. Well?' When you first caused me to be brought here, Miss Havisham, when I belonged to the village over yonder, that I wish I had never left, I suppose I did really come here as any other chance boy, might have come, as a kind of servant, to gratify a want or a whim, and to be paid for it?" "'Aye, Pip,' replied Miss Havisham, steadily nodding her head, "'you did.' And that Mr. Jaggers—' "'Mr. Jaggers,' said Miss Havisham, taking me up in a firm tone, "'had nothing to do with it, and knew nothing of it. His being my lawyer—' and his being the lawyer of your patron, is a coincidence. He holds the same relation towards a number of people, and it might easily arise. Be that as it may, it did arise, and was not brought about by any one. Any one might have seen her haggard face, that there was no suppression or evasion so far. But when I fell into the mistake, I have so long remained in, at least you led me on said I. Yes?" She returned, again nodding steadily,—'I let you go on.' Was that kind? "'Who am I?' cried Miss Havisham, striking her stick upon the floor, and flashing into wrath so suddenly, that Estella glanced up at her in surprise,—'Who am I, for God's sake, that I should be kind?' It was a weak complaint to have made, and I had not meant to make it. I told her so, as she sat brooding after this outburst. Well, well, well," she said. What else? I was liberally paid for my old attendance here, I said to soothe her, in being apprenticed, and I have asked these questions only for my own information. What follows has another, and I hope more disinterested purpose. In humoring my mistake, Miss Havisham, you punished practiced on, perhaps you will supply whatever term expresses your intention, without offence, your self-seeking relations?" "'I did. Why, they would have it so, so would you. What has been my history, that I should be at the pains of entreating either them or you, not to have it so? You made your own snares, I never made them." Waiting until she was quiet again. For this, too, flashed out of her in a wild and sudden way. I went on. I have been thrown among one family of your relations, Miss Havisham, and have been constantly among them since I went to London. I know them to have been as honestly under my delusion as I myself. And I should be false and base, if I did not tell you, whether it is acceptable to you or no, and whether you are inclined to give credence to it or no, that you deeply wrong both Mr. Matthew Pocket, and his son Herbert. If you suppose them to be otherwise than generous, upright, open, and incapable of anything designing or mean." They are your friends," said Miss Havisham. They made themselves my friends," said I, when they supposed me to have superseded them. And when Sarah Pocket, Miss Georgiana, and Mistress Camilla, were not my friends, I think. This contrasting of them with the rest seemed, I was glad to see, to do them good with her. She looked at me keenly for a little while, and then said quietly, "'What do you want for them?' "'Only,' said I, "'that you would not confound them with the others. They may be of the same blood, but, believe me, they are not of the same nature.' Still looking at me keenly, Miss Havisham repeated, What do you want for them? I am not so cunning, you see," I said, in answer, conscious that I reddened a little, as that I could hide from you, even if I desired that I do want something. Miss Havisham, if you would spare the money to do my friend Herbert a lasting service in life, but which, from the nature of the case, must be done without his knowledge, I could show you how. Why must it be done without his knowledge?" she asked, settling her hands upon her stick, that she might regard me the more attentively. Because, said I, I began the service myself, more than two years ago, without his knowledge, and I don't want to be betrayed. Why I fail in my ability to finish it, I cannot explain. It is a part of the secret which is another person's, and not mine. She gradually withdrew her eyes from me, and turned them on the fire. After watching it for what appeared in the silence, and by the light of the slowly wasting candles, to be a long time, she was roused by the collapse of some of the red coals, and looked towards me again—at first vacantly, then with a gradually concentrating attention. All this time Estella knitted on. When Miss Havisham had fixed her attention on me, she said, speaking as if there had been no lapse in our dialogue, "'What else?' "'Estella,' said I, turning to her now, and trying to command my trembling voice, "'You know I love you. You know that I have loved you long and dearly.' He raised her eyes to my face, on being thus addressed, and her fingers plied their work and she looked at me with an unmoved countenance. I saw that Miss Havisham glanced from me to her, and from her to me. I should have said this sooner, but for my long mistake. It induced me to hope that Miss Havisham meant us for one another. While I thought you could not help yourself, as it were, I refrained from saying it. But I must say it now." Preserving her unmoved countenance, and with her finger still going, Estella shook her head. I know," said I, in answer to that action, I know. I have no hope that I shall ever call you mine, Estella. I am ignorant what may become of me very soon, how poor I may be, or where I may go. Still I love you. I have loved you ever since I first saw you in this house." Looking at me perfectly unmoved and with her fingers busy, she shook her head again. It would have been cruel in Miss Havisham, horribly cruel, to practise on the susceptibility of a poor boy, and to torture me, through all these years, with a vain hope and an idle pursuit, if she had reflected on the gravity of what she did. But I think she did not. I think that in the endurance of her own trial, she forgot mine, Estella. I saw Miss Havisham put her hand to her heart, and hold it there, as she sat looking by turns at Estella, and at me. "'It seems,' said Estella, very calmly, that there are sentiments, fancies—I don't know how to call them—which I am not able to comprehend. When you say you love me, I know what you mean, as a form of words, but nothing more. You address nothing in my breast. You touch nothing there. I don't care for what you say at all. I have tried to warn you of this. Now have I not?" I said in a miserable manner,—'Yes.' "'Yes. But you would not be warned. For you thought I did not mean it. Now did you not think so?' "'I thought, and hoped you could not mean it. You, so young. Untried and beautiful estella surely it is not in nature It is in my nature She returned and then she added with a stress upon the words it is in the nature formed within me I Make a great difference between you and all other people when I say so much I Can do no more Is it not true Said I that Bentley drummle is in town here and pursuing you It is quite true," she replied, referring to him with the indifference of utter contempt. That you encourage him, and ride out with him, and that he dines with you this very day?" She seemed a little surprised that I should know it, but again replied, "'Quite true.' You cannot love him, Estella." Her fingers stopped for the first time, as she retorted rather angrily, "'What have I told you?' Do you still think, in spite of it, that I do not mean what I say?" "'You would never marry him, Estella.' She looked towards Miss Hammersham, and considered for a moment, with her work in her hands. Then she said, "'Why not tell you the truth? I am going to be married to him.' I dropped my face into my hands, but was able to control myself better than I could have expected, considering what agony it gave me to hear her say those words. When I raised my face again, there was such a ghastly look upon Miss Havisham's, that it impressed me, even in my passionate hurry and grief. Estella! Dearest! Dearest Estella! Do not let Miss Havisham lead you into this fatal step. Put me aside for ever. You have done so, I well know. But bestow yourself on some worthier person than Drummle! Miss Havisham gives you to him as the greatest slight and injury that can be done to the many far better men who admire you, and to the few who truly love you. Among those few, there may be one who loves you even as dearly, though he has not loved you as long as I. Take him, and I can bear it better for your sake." My earnestness awoke a wonder in her, as seemed as if it would have been touched with compassion, if she could have rendered me at all intelligible to her own mind. I am going, she said again, in a gentler voice, to be married to him. The preparations for my marriage are making, and I shall be married soon. Why do you injuriously introduce the name of my mother by adoption? It is my own act." "'Your own act, Estella? To fling yourself away upon a brute?' "'On whom should I fling myself away?' She retorted, with a smile. Should I fling myself away upon the man who would the soonest feel, if people do feel such things, that I took nothing to him? There. It is done. I shall do well enough, and so will my husband. As to leading me into what you call this fatal step, Miss Havisham would have had me wait, and not marry yet. But I am tired of the life I have led, which has very few charms for me and I am willing enough to change it. Say no more. We shall never understand each other." "'Such a mean brute! Such a stupid brute!' I urged in despair. "'Don't be afraid of my being a blessing to him,' said Estella. "'I shall not be that. Come, here is my hand. Do we part on this, you visionary boy, or man?' "'Oh! Estella! I answered, as my bitter tears fell fast on her hand, do what I would to restrain them. Even if I remained in England, and could hold my head up with the rest, how could I see you, Drumble's wife? "'Nonsense,' she returned. "'Nonsense! This will pass in no time.' "'Never, Estella.' "'You'll get me out of your thoughts in a week.' "'Out of my thoughts?' You are part of my existence, part of myself. You have been in every line I have ever read, since I first came here—the rough, common boy, whose poor heart you wounded even then. You have been in every prospect I have ever seen since—on the river, on the sails of the ships, on the marshes, in the clouds, in the light, in the darkness, in the wind, in the woods, in the sea, in the streets. You have been the embodiment of every graceful fancy that my mind has ever become acquainted with. The stones of which the strongest London buildings are made, are not more real, or more impossible to be displaced by your hands, than your presence and influence have been to me, there and everywhere, and will be. Estella, to the last hour of my life, you cannot choose but remain part of my character. Part of the little good in me, part of the evil. But, in this separation, I associate you only with the good, and I will faithfully hold you to that always, for you must have done me far more good than harm. Let me feel now, what sharp distress I may. Oh, God bless you! God forgive you! In what ecstasy of unhappiness I got these broken words out of myself, I don't know. The rhapsody welled up within me, like blood from an inward wound, and gushed out. I held her hand to my lips some lingering moments, and so I left her. But ever afterwards, I remembered, and soon afterwards with stronger reason, that while Estella looked at me merely with incredulous wonder. The spectral figure of Miss Havisham, her hand still covering her heart, seemed all resolved into a ghastly stare of pity and remorse. All done. All gone. So much was done and gone, that when I went out at the gate, the light of the day seemed of a darker color than when I went in. For a while, I hid myself among some lanes and by-paths and then struck off to walk all the way to London for I had by that time come to myself so far as to consider that I could not go back to the inn and see drummle there that I could not bear to sit upon the coach and be spoken to that I could do nothing half so good for myself as tire myself out it was past midnight when I crossed London bridge pursuing the narrow intricacies of the streets which at that time tended westward near the Middlesex shore of the river. My readiest access to the temple was close by the river-side, through Whitefriars. I was not expected till to-morrow, but I had my keys, and, if Herbert were gone to bed, could get to bed myself without disturbing him. As it seldom happened that I came in at that Whitefriars gate after the temple was closed, and as I was very muddy and weary, I did not take it ill that the night-porter examined me with much attention as he held the gate a little way open for me to pass in. To help his memory, I mentioned my name. I was not quite sure, sir, but I thought so. Here's a note, sir. The messenger that brought it said would you be so good as read it by my lantern." Much surprised by the request, I took the note. It was directed to Philip Pip Esquire and on the top of the superscription were the words, Please read this here. I opened it, the watchman holding up his light, and read inside, in Wemmick's writing, Don't go home. End of Chapter 44 Chapter 45 of Great Expectations this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, Chapter Forty Five. Turning from the Temple Gate, as soon as I had read the warning, I made the best of my way to Fleet Street, and there got a late hackney chariot and drove to the Hummums in Covent Garden. In those times, a bed was always to be got there at any hour of the night. And the chamberlain, letting me in at his ready wicket, lighted the candle next in order on his shelf, and showed me straight into the bedroom next in order on his list. It was a sort of vault on the ground floor at the back, with a despotic monster of a four-post bedstead in it, straddling over the whole place, putting one of his arbitrary legs into the fireplace, and another into the doorway, and squeezing the wretched little washing-stand in quite a divinely righteous manner. As I had asked for a night-light, the Chamberlain had brought me in, before he left me, the good old constitutional rush-light of those virtuous days, an object like the ghost of a walking-cane, which instantly broke its back if it were touched, which nothing could ever be lighted at, and which was placed in solitary confinement at the bottom of a high tin tower, perforated with round holes, had made a staringly wide-awake pattern on the walls. When I had got into bed and lay there, footsore, weary, and wretched, I found that I could no more close my own eyes than I could close the eyes of this foolish Argus. And thus, in the gloom and death of the night, we stared at one another. What a doleful night! How anxious! How dismal! How long! There was an inhospitable smell in the room, of cold soot and hot dust, and, as I looked up into the corners of the tester over my head. I thought what a number of blue-bottle flies from the butchers, and earwigs from the market, and grubs from the country, must be holding on up there, lying by for next summer. This led me to speculate whether any of them ever tumbled down, and then I fancied that I felt light falls on my face, a disagreeable turn of thought, suggesting other and more objectionable approaches up my back. When I had lain awake a little while, those extraordinary voices— with which silence teems, began to make themselves audible. The closet whispered. The fireplace sighed. The little washing-stand ticked, and one guitar-string played occasionally in the chest of drawers. At about the same time, the eyes on the wall acquired a new expression, and in every one of those staring rounds I saw written, Don't go home. Whatever night fancies and night noises crowded on me, they never warded off this don't-go-home. It plattered itself into whatever I thought of, as a bodily pain would have done. Not long before, I had read in the newspapers how a gentleman, unknown, had come to the hummums in the night, and had gone to bed, and had destroyed himself, and had been found in the morning, weltering in blood. It came into my head that he must have occupied this very vault of mine. And i got out of bed to assure myself there were no red marks about and opened the door to look out into the passages and cheer myself with the companionship of a distant light near which i knew the chamberlain to be dozing but all this time why i was not to go home and what had happened at home and when i should go home and whether Provis was safe at home were questions occupying my mind so busily that one might have supposed there could be no more room in it for any other theme. Even when I thought of Estella, and how we had parted that day for ever, and when I recalled all the circumstances of our parting, and all her looks and tones, and the action of her fingers while she knitted, even then I was pursuing, here and there and everywhere, the caution, don't go home. When at last I dozed. In sheer exhaustion of mind and body, it became a vast shadowy verb, which I had to conjugate. Imperative mood, present tense. Do not thou go home. Let him not go home. Let us not go home. Do not ye, or you, go home. Let not them go home. Then potentially, I may not, and I cannot, go home, and I might not, could not, would not and should not go home, until I felt that I was going distracted, and rolled over on the pillow, and looked at the staring rounds upon the wall again. I had left directions that I was to be called at seven, for it was plain that I must see Wemmick before seeing any one else, and equally plain that this was a case in which his Walworth sentiments only could be taken. It was a relief to get out of the room where the night had been so miserable and I needed no second knocking at the door to startle me from my uneasy bed. The castle battlements arose upon my view at eight o'clock. The little servant, happening to be entering the fortress with two hot rolls, I passed through the postern, and crossed the drawbridge, in her company, and so came without announcement into the presence of Wemmick, as he was making tea for himself and the aged. An open door afforded a perspective view of the aged in bed. Hello, Mr. Pip," said Wemmick. You did come home, then?" Yes," I returned, but I didn't go home. That's all right," said he, rubbing his hands. I left a note for you at each of the temple gates on the chance. Which gate did you come to?" I told him. I'll go round to the others in the course of the day, and destroy the notes," said Wemmick. It's a good rule, never to leave documentary evidence, if you can help it because you don't know when it may be put in. I'm going to take a liberty with you. Would you mind toasting this sausage for the aged pea?" I said I should be delighted to do it. "'Then you can go about your work, Mary Anne,' said Wemmick to the little servant. "'Which leaves us to ourselves, don't you see, Mr. Pip?' he added, winking, as she disappeared. I thanked him for his friendship and caution, and our discourse proceeded in a low tone while I toasted the aged sausage, and he buttered the crumb of the aged's roll. "'Now, Mr. Pip, you know,' said Wemmick, "'you and I understand one another. We are in our private and personal capacities, and we have been engaged in a confidential transaction before to-day. Official sentiments are one thing. We are extra-official.' I cordially assented. I was so very nervous that I had already lighted the aged's sausage like a torch, and been obliged to blow it out. I accidentally heard, yesterday morning," said Wemmick, being in a certain place where I once took you, even between you and me, it is as well not to mention names, when avoidable. Much better not," said I. I understand you. I heard there by chance, yesterday morning," said Wemmick, that a certain person, not altogether of uncolonial pursuits, and not unpossessed of portable property—I don't know where it may really be—we won't name this person. Not necessary," said I. I had made some little stir in a certain part of the world where a good many people go, not always in gratification of their own inclinations, and not quite irrespective of the government expense. In watching his face, I made quite a firework of the aged sausage and greatly discomposed both my own attention and Wemmick's, for which I apologized. By disappearing from such place, and being no more heard of thereabouts, from which, said Wemmick, conjectures had been raised, and theories formed, I also heard that you at your chambers in garden-court-temple had been watched, and might be watched again. By whom, said I, I wouldn't go into that said Wemmick, evasively. It might clash with official responsibilities. I heard it, as I have in my time heard other curious things in the same place. I don't tell it you, on information received. I heard it." He took the toasting-fork and sausage from me as he spoke, and set forth the aged's breakfast neatly on a little tray. Previous to placing it before him, he went into the aged's room with a clean white cloth and tied the same under the old gentleman's chin, and propped him up, and put his nightcap on one side, and gave him quite a rakish air. Then he placed his breakfast before him with great care, and said, "'All right! Ain't you aged P?' To which the cheerful aged reply, "'All right, John, my boy, all right!' As there seemed to be a tacit understanding, that the aged was not in a presentable state, and was therefore to be considered invisible, I made a pretence of being in complete ignorance of these proceedings. This watching of me at my chambers, which I have once had reason to suspect, I said to Wemmick when he came back, is inseparable from the person to whom you have adverted, is it? Wemmick looked very serious. Oh, I couldn't undertake to say that of my own knowledge. I mean, I couldn't undertake to say it was at first, but it either is, or it will be, or it's in great danger of being." As I saw that he was restrained by fealty to Little Britain from saying as much as he could, and as I knew with thankfulness to him how far out of his way he went to say what he did, I could not press him. But I told him, after a little meditation over the fire, that I would like to ask him a question subject to his answering or not answering, as he deemed right, and sure that his course would be right. He paused in his breakfast, and crossing his arms, and pinching his shirt-sleeves his notion of indoor comfort was to sit without any coat, he nodded to me once, to put my question. "'You have heard of a man of bad character, whose true name is Compeyson. he answered with one other nod. "'Is he living?' one other nod. Is he in London?" He gave me one other nod, compressed the post-office exceedingly, gave me one last nod, and went on with his breakfast. "'Now,' said Wemmick, "'questioning being over,' which he emphasized and repeated for my guidance, "'I come to what I did, after hearing what I heard. I went to Garden Court to find you—not finding you. I went to Clarick's to find Mr. Herbert. And him you found?" said I, with great anxiety. And him I found. Without mentioning any names, or going into any details, I gave him to understand, that if he was aware of anybody, Tom, Jack, or Richard, being about the chambers, or about the immediate neighbourhood, he had better get Tom, Jack, or Richard, out of the way, while you were out of the way. He would be greatly puzzled what to do. He was puzzled what to do, not the less, because I gave him my opinion that it was not safe to try to get Tom, Jack, or Richard too far out of the way at present. Mr. Pip, I'll tell you something. Under existing circumstances, there's no place like a great city when you are at once in it. Don't break cover too soon. Lie close. Wait till things slacken before you try the open even for foreign air. I thanked him for his valuable advice, and asked him what Herbert had done. Mr. Herbert, said Wemmick, after being all of a heap for half an hour, struck out a plan. He mentioned to me as a secret that he is caught in a young lady who has, as no doubt you are aware, a bedridden pa, which pa, having been in the purser line of life, lies abed, in a bow-window, where it can see the ship sail up and down the river. You are acquainted with the young lady, most probably?" "'Not personally,' said I. The truth was, that she had objected to me as an expensive companion who did Herbert no good, and that, when Herbert had first proposed to present me to her, she had received the proposal with such very moderate warmth that Herbert had felt himself obliged to confide the state of the case to me, with a view to the lapse of a little time before I made her acquaintance. When I had begun to advance Herbert's prospects by stealth, I had been able to bear this with cheerful philosophy. He and his affianced, for their part, had naturally not been very anxious to introduce a third person into their interviews, and thus, although I was assured that I had risen in Clara's esteem. And although the young lady and I had long regularly interchanged messages and remembrances by Herbert, I had never seen her. However, I did not trouble Wemmick with these particulars. The house with the bow-window, said Wemmick, being by the river-side, down the pool there, between Limehouse and Greenwich, and being kept, it seems, by a very respectable widow, who has a furnished up the floor to let, Mr. Herbert put it to me. What did I think of that as a temporary tenement for Tom, Jack, or Richard? Now I thought very well of it, for these three reasons I'll give you. That is to say, firstly, it's altogether out of all your beats, and is well away from the usual heap of streets, great and small. Secondly, without going near it yourself, you could always hear of the safety of Tom, Jack, or Richard through Mr. Herbert. Thirdly, after a while, and when it might be prudent, if you should want to slip Tom, Jack, or Richard, on board a foreign packet-boat, there he is, ready." Much comforted by these considerations, I thanked Wemmick again and again, and begged him to proceed. Well, sir, Mr. Erwitt threw himself into the business with a will, and by nine o'clock last night he housed Tom, Jack, or Richard, whichever it may be you and I don't want to know, quite successfully. At the old lodgings, it was understood that he was summoned to Dover. And in fact, he was taken down the Dover road, and cornered out of it. Now, another great advantage of all this is, that it was done without you. And when, if any one was concerning himself about your movements, you must be known to be ever so many miles off, and quite otherwise engaged. This diverts suspicion, and confuses it, and for the same reason, I recommended, that even if you came back last night, you should not go home. It brings in more confusion, and you want confusion." Wemmick, having finished his breakfast, here looked at his watch, and began to get his coat on. "'And now, Mr. Pip,' said he, with his hands still in the sleeves, "'I have probably done the most I can do, but if I can ever do more, from a Walworth point of view, and in a strictly private and personal capacity, I shall be glad to do it. Here's the address. There can be no harm in your going here to-night, and seeing for yourself that all is well with Tom, Jack, or Richard, before you go home, which is another reason for your not going home last night. But after you have gone home, don't go back here. You're very welcome, I am sure, Mr. Pip." His hands were now out of his sleeves and I was shaking them, and let me finally impress one important point upon you." He laid his hands upon my shoulders, and added in a solemn whisper, "Avail yourself of this evening, to lay hold of his portable property. You don't know what may happen to him. Don't let anything happen to the portable property." Quite despairing of making my mind clear to Wemmick on this point, I forbore to try. Time's up," said Wemmick, and I must be off. If you had nothing more pressing to do, than to keep here till dark, that's what I should advise. You look very much worried, and it would do you good to have a perfectly quiet day with the aged. He'll be up presently, and a little bit of—you remember the pig?" "'Of course,' said I. "'Well, and a little bit of him. That sausage you toasted was his and he was in all respects a first-rater. Do try him, if it is only for old acquaintance' sake. "'Good-bye, aged parent!' in a cheery shout. "'All right, John! All right, my boy!' piped the old man from within. I soon fell asleep before Wemmick's fire, and the aged and I enjoyed one another's society by falling asleep before it, more or less, all day. We had loin of pork for dinner, and greens grown on the estate, and I nodded at the aged, with a good intention, whenever I failed to do it drowsily. When it was quite dark, I left the aged preparing the fire for toast, and I inferred from the number of teacups, as well as from his glances at the two little doors in the wall, that Miss Skiffen's was expected. End of chapter 45